0: If you weren't here last week, we started in on the book of Philippians. That's our new book that we'll be studying. It's just four chapters long, so it should take us several years to get through. And um, we're off to a good start. Last week was an introduction. This week is an introduction. And next week will be an introduction. So we're doing three weeks of introduction. Is that overkill? Absolutely. That's the way we do things. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and Philippians, It's very important for you if you weren't here to get that message for two reasons. Number one, it's the background story on the church of Philippi in the book of Philippians, how the church came into existence from Acts 16, Paul's second missionary journey, how he was led by the spirit and what the gospel did and who was saved and who the original church was. It's an incredible story. This great snapshot of Paul beginning to live to a greater degree, God's story for him instead of his own story. And that's what we need to do in our lives. But then secondly... In that message, we talked about the importance and really the necessity for Christians to hear from the Holy Spirit, to discern the prophetic leading of the Spirit of God. We talked about visions and dreams being normative within biblical Christianity and how we need to tune our ears to hear the voice of the Spirit to be led and and comforted and blessed and guided into mission and all those things. So incredibly important message for every Christian and for everyone that wants to journey through the book of Philippians with us. So if you weren't here last week, please get that some way. So that was The Holy Spirit and Philippians, today is the big picture of Philippians. And then next week, our final introduction will be the critical concept in Philippians. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your current work of grace in our church and in our lives. Holy Spirit, we together sense you leading us to a deeper place of knowing you of exalting Jesus, of experiencing Jesus, of fully living for him and his glory. We see you each time we're gathering, further revealing Christ and all his beauty. You're teaching us to understand that he is the supreme treasure of all that exists. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this work. We ask that you would continue it. We ask that you deal with the things in our lives that are lesser things that we pursue in too great of a way. And that Jesus Christ would become for us the ultimate one. Work this in us by grace. Please, Lord, help me to communicate. I don't want to communicate anything to your beautiful church. that's not from your beautiful heart. So, Lord, let me be your mouthpiece, please, God. I ask that you accomplish this work for your glory and by your spirit. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Paul wrote this letter about 10 years after he ch- started the church of Philippi. Um, that bears a little bit of explanation. It's a letter written to the Philippians. Okay, so Philippians are people that live in a town called Philippi, just like Carpenterians are from Carpenteria. Can I hear from the Carpenterians this afternoon? Yeah. Okay, and other people from other places, but Carpenterians are from Carpentaria, and Philippians from Philippi. Um, and it's a letter. Okay, trip out on that for a moment. It's called the Epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. An epistle is a fancy word for a letter. Paul wrote a letter to his friends that he knew. He was being personal, he was dealing with some issues, explaining some things. I just want to stop for a moment and cause, have that cause us to think. Paul wrote a letter. He never had any inclination that it would become Bible. He never had any thought about that. He just was just writing to his friends, doing what it seemed he ought to do. He was doing it for the glory of God and by the grace of God, but he couldn't have understood that it would become Bible. So because it is Bible, what we say is that the Holy Spirit is the author. All scriptures God breathed. The Holy Spirit is the author. Paul was merely the writer, right? The, The message is from the Spirit of God for the church of God. But Paul was the instrument of God to get it delivered. What are the implications of that for our lives? Paul had no idea that these words that he would pen would change the world, literally. That they would be Bible and change the world. What about the things that we're currently doing? You see, I think we often sell ourselves and the mission of Christ in us and through us short. I think that we settle to just live, that we settle to just get by when there is a possibility and the opportunity in Christ for the glory of God to do so much more, that by the enabling of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God, we can be world changers. We can change relationships, family situations, communities, the whole world as the gospel goes forth through you. Because throughout history, God has chosen to work through people, not independent of people. And that means you people. So don't sell the mission of Christ through you for the glory of God short. Don't just be settling with just getting by and just living and going through the paces. How do you not know that something that God is orchestrating in your life right now might not change the world, might not shape culture, might redirect the course of people? I mean, that's what God does throughout history. That's what we see in the Bible, okay? As people just like you and me, Paul never would have thought that his letter would become Bible. It's things God is doing in your life you can never imagine. Give attention to those things. Be all about them. So this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians is, in my opinion, the most tender of all of his letters. You can just sense the love that he has for that church. We, we, we know because we know the background from last week, the profound start of that church. They've got this real common experience of suffering. We've talked before that suffering brings people together in a profound way, not success, right? If, if success bonded people together, the Beatles never would have broken up. But it's actually suffering that brings people together. Talk to any soldiers that have been on the front line together. They love each other. They got each other's back. There's this, this really radical connection. So he's got this radical connection with the church because they've suffered together and both parties are suffering at this time. And so it's a real tender letter and for that reason. It's a pleasure to read. And the book of Philippians is only about 2,300 words. That's really short. My average sermon outline is about 2,300 words. It's only 104 verses, and yet it's just a nugget factory. Some of the biggest nuggets in the Bible that we all fall back on from time to time, and the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance for us, are from the book of Philippians. Let's look at a few. Start in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, For I am confident of this very thing, That he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Which one of us haven't fallen back on that in hard times to realize that, no, God is still working in me and God's faithful to complete his work. Who hasn't used that to encourage other Christians? I use that one all the time. Verse 21 is pivotal and we'll talk more about it in a few moments. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's, that's one of the biggest verses in the New Testament. What about chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 are famous and well-known and challenge us every time we read them? It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others and have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That, that one is huge and so challenging. We all know that one. What about um, chapter three, starting in verse seven? This is one of the richest passages about Jesus being the treasure of surpassing worth. Verse seven of chapter three, Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible there. Verse 20, we remember from time to time, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a savior who is Christ the Lord. What about chapter four? Chapter four, we've all gone to in difficult times. Verse four, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's a promise. Here's a radical promise. Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good of repute, if there is excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And then of course, chapter four, verse 13, Evander Holyfield had it on his boxing robe. I can do all things through him who strengthens me at least until he met Mike Tyson, he believed that. These are some of the richest passages in all of Scripture. And they're all right here in Philippians, 104 short short verses. This is just a nug factory. And what makes some of these things so profound is that Paul says them from a real place of pain. Okay, what makes them so weighty is he's speaking them forth and sharing them in a context of suffering in the midst of tremendous difficulty. At the time that Paul wrote this, he was unjustly imprisoned for preaching the gospel by Rome. He was under house arrest. He was to appear before Nero and he wasn't sure of his fate. We learned about Nero and we studied the book of Hebrews. This guy was a nut job. Who knows what he might've done to the apostle Paul. So Paul's in a real place of difficulty, pain, suffering. He had gone through much more prior to this imprisonment. We'll talk about that next week. And yet this letter is brimming over with expressions of praise and confidence and joy. And because of the context, it's impossible to see them as trite. Because Paul's coming from this place of real pain and difficulty and suffering. And so he's writing for a couple reasons. He wants to convey what he's going through to the Philippians, their friends, and he also wants to identify with them in their time of difficulty. See, both parties, um, the writer and the recipient, were experiencing pressure from external and internal sources. Paul was imprisoned by Rome unjustly for preaching the gospel. There's external pressure, okay? Some difficulty, some real suffering brought on him from external sources. And then while he is imprisoned by Rome under house arrest, he's not allowed to preach the gospel publicly. And so some other guys kind of moved in and started preaching the gospel and doing it in order to gain position and recognition. Seeing an opportunity for themselves, Paul now being out of the public preaching picture, and so they're wanting to promote themselves to the detriment of Paul. And there's some, you know, these, these were fellow preachers of the gospel. These should have been like Paul's homeboys. These were, these were the guys on the inside. But, you know, they're causing him some pain and some suffering, a little turmoil and anguish. So he's got drama from the outside, drama from the inside, and so did the Philippians. The Philippians are also experiencing persecution, difficulty, and suffering. The text makes this clear at the end of chapter 1 where it says in verse 29, Paul speaking to them, for to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So in the way that they saw Paul imprisoned when the church was launched, the way they're hearing about it now, they're also experiencing external pressure from the prevailing culture. Okay, they're suffering. There's some real true opposition. On top of that, there's some turmoil from within. We learn in chapter four about a couple women who weren't getting along and Paul's trying to tell them to get along and there was obviously some other disputes within the church evident in the language that he uses. So those that should have been on the inside, those that should have had each other's backs are now biting each other's backs. So both parties have this difficulty from external and internal sources. And so Paul writes to them to plead with them to stand firm together, united for the cause of the gospel, to please recognize that there is someone and something bigger than yourself to live for, that there is more at stake than your own rights and your own desires and your own hurts and your own drama. The light of who Christ is and the gospel of God. He's pleading with them to stand together, bound in one mind, to keep things together. And and the centerpiece and the heart of his argument won't be an argument at all. It'll be a story. The story of one, the one, capital O, Jesus Christ, who suffered from external sources and was betrayed by those who should have been on the inside those who should have been his boys, who should have had his back, Israel. He's betrayed by them, and he was crucified by Rome. He experienced external and internal crushing and rejection and pain and suffering. And ultimately, he did it in our place that we might have new life. And the story then, that even though we've performed so poorly, we've been treated so kindly by God, And even though we were headed toward destruction, we've been given a new nature and a new life and a hope and a future. And even though we were outcast from God and lonely and disenfranchised and unsatisfied, we've been brought into the family and adopted and loved and adored and settled in him. The story of the gospel enables Paul to repeatedly testify from a place of pain and suffering of the joy that he is experiencing. Because of the one who suffered in our place. And that store of redemption and even victory through the resurrection. Paul is able to testify that in his pain, he is experiencing joy. And so here emerges in the book of Philippians, this New Testament concept that pain and joy go together in the economy of God. That they need not be mutually exclusive that the Christian can experience tremendous, real, profound, lasting joy in the midst of real, true pain and suffering. We see these two paired all the time together in the New Testament and most clearly maybe here in the book of Philippians. And so joy from a place of pain then becomes a critical concept in Philippians that we'll talk about next week. The Greek word for joy or rejoice appears 19 times in this book. It's been called the epistle or the letter of joy. And so for that reason, because that theme is so strong here in this book and comes from such an authentic place with Paul, many would say, like when you read commentaries and try to get a grasp on what the book is all about, most commentators would say that the theme verse is verse 4 in chapter 4, which we read already. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And they would say that that's a theme verse of the book of Philippians. And I would agree that that is a key verse, but it's not the key to the book of Philippians. Because if Paul is merely saying to them a standalone statement, hey, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Then the message is failing because that is never a standalone statement in the word of God. That can't be within Christianity a standalone statement. If we're merely saying to each other, hey, rejoice, then we've got nothing to say that the world isn't already saying. Because the world already says, hey, lift your head up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, have a positive attitude, put a smile on your face, come on, we'll get through it. Paul's not saying that in the way that the world says that. You see, there's something that undergirds that that means that simply can't be the key to this book. There's there's something deeper. Something has to undergird the joy. There has to be something real and tangible and eternally true that enables us to have true and better joy in the midst of pain, disappointment, suffering, and hurt. There has to be a bedrock upon which that statement stands It's never a standalone statement in that bedrock is the person of Jesus Christ himself. So then the key to the book of Philippians is chapter one, verse 21, where Paul says, as for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That becomes the key to the book. It is wholly Christocentric. The only reason that we could have joy in the midst of pain is because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. What he is currently doing and what he will accomplish. So the book is actually all about Jesus, aren't you surprised? And though joy and rejoice appear in the Greek 19 times, there's about 50 times that a title or a name for Jesus appears. That's one every two verses. Every chapter starts with Jesus. The first two chapters say, in Christ at the beginning. The last two chapters say, in the Lord in the beginning. So then, the critical concept, which is joy from a place of pain, is only a possibility, okay? Just, just, just a possibility because of who Christ is and what he's accomplished on the cross in our place. So the big picture of Philippians, if you want to grasp that, is best understood as wanting to convey to us the ultimate value of Christ. It's altogether Christocentric. We love that word, don't we? Big, silly word to say it's Christ-centered. It's it's all about him. And listen, that's the way that we need to read the Bible. You see, we often read the Bible with us at the center. What does this have to say about me? My drama, my difficulties, my situation. What, what, What does this have to say to me for today? See, we read it us-centrically. I just made up that word. We're egocentric in our Bible reading. It is, we go to it, and it's, but it's supposed to be all about Jesus. The whole of the book is about him. And when we begin to read the Bible Christocentrically, trying to see Jesus as a centerpiece in the reason and the cause and the purpose and the end goal, the telos. You see, then we're getting somewhere. And that's what's going on in Philippians. And so the way this picture emerges in Philippians is that in chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the ultimate life. For me, to live is Christ. In chapter 2, Jesus is presented as the ultimate example who humbled himself, draping himself in humanity, become obedient to the point of the cross. In chapter 3, Jesus is presented as the ultimate treasure for whom we can count everything else loss, rubbish, in light of gaining him. And in chapter four, Jesus is seen as the ultimate strength. Can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the crux of it is this statement again as for me to live is Christ. Now I know we like the second part of that. To die is gain. Right? Sometimes we we go there and we, we put the emphasis on that. And all, I'll just be really honest with you. There's been times in my life in the last year where that, that seemed like the best option. To die is gain. But the emphasis of that statement is on life. For me to live is Christ. And then everything else flows out of that declaration and that truth happening in our lives. Because if our lives truly become about Christ, if if I'm gonna live and it's gonna be all about Jesus, then I'm gonna wanna get to chapter two where he's seen as the ultimate example because all of a sudden I wanna be like Jesus because for me to live means him. So I wanna be like him. So then we got to chapter two. And if I wanna be like Christ... And if I do that, then all of a sudden I'm going to treasure him to a greater degree. You're just going to see more clearly as you're following him closely, you'll see him more clearly. And then you get to chapter three where he's portrayed as our ultimate treasure. And then and only then do I think we really lay hold of the thrust of chapter four where he's our ultimate strength. You see, most of us just want to go right to chapter four because what we want in life is just help. That's really what we want. So we want to go right to chapter four and say, Christ, okay, I can do all things through you. And so we we just want to be there. And we get times of difficulty. And okay, now, Jesus, now I need you. Triumphal entry now, ahorita, right now, come. Okay, now I need you come and clean up my mess. And what I want to suggest is that there is a road to chapter four that we will never truly experience the strength of Christ in us Until we value Christ above everything else. Until we've sought to emulate Christ in our living, in our life, in our thought processes. Until we're able to say by grace and for the glory of God, as for me, if I'm going to live, it means Christ. So why does Paul say that Christ is the ultimate life? He says it in the context of relaying his difficulty. Again, by this time he's been under house arrest for four years. He got to rent his own house, and you might say, oh man, that's soft jail, that's wimpy, that's nothing. But he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And for a man like Paul, that was torture, because Paul was a go-getter. Paul was out there, Paul was traveling, preaching the message, planting churches. So for Paul to be confined to a house for four years, you know this man was going So, Okay, so this was a true prison for him, and he was chained to Roman guards 24-7 waiting to appear before Nero. And Nero's in no hurry. Nero's the emperor of Rome. He's not overly concerned with some Jewish guy preaching some obscure gospel from Asia, right? So it's not like Nero's really hoping to get Paul in front of him soon to deal with it. So Paul's sitting there four years. It's driving him nuts. And and it's from that place where he's able to say in verse 20, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter what happens, Christ is going to be glorified, whether I live or whether I die. And he's not saying that in a cultural context that was friendly to that idea. I mean, he's really declaring the the ultimate supremacy of Jesus. He's he's declaring full-on allegiance to Jesus. He's acting out in a multitude of words, Christ is Lord. Okay, and he's not saying that to a culture that was going, oh yeah, that's awesome. We love that message. You see, Rome during the time of Paul was a pluralistic society. What does it mean to be pluralistic? It, It means that you see everything is a matter of perspective. So you might explain something and say, this is the way it is. And someone else would say, well, I actually see it from this perspective. This is the way it is. And what you say is good for you. How many of you have heard that? That's good for you that you're a Christian. But here's the way that I see it. Here's the way that I read it. Here's the way that I think about it. And Rome during the time of Paul was a culture that embraced that. It wasn't looking for one ideology or one truth claim or one epistemology, that's a theory of knowledge, to rise to the top. And instead it was saying, okay, all of these things can be equally true. And the way that this played out practically for Rome was Rome was in the business at the time of conquering the world. And so when Rome would go and conquer a people group, Rome would import their gods to them and say, look, we've got this Roman pantheon. Here's all our gods. There's some pretty cool ones and check them out. Okay, who are your gods? And they would import the gods of those people. And so there were all sorts of gods in that culture. And there was all this commingling of different gods from different cultures. And I'll tell you what that did. It kept any one god from rising to a place of supremacy and usurping the authority of Rome. And that was the political device of Rome. See, Rome was happy to use religion for politics. But it never wanted to be tamed by religion. And so pluralism kept it all at bay. It's equally true. It's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for me. There's lots of different ways. This is a society that we live in. We are in the exact same context. And when Paul said, Jesus is going to be glorified in my body whether I live or die, to live is Christ. That was a counter-cultural declaration. And it is radically countercultural for us to say that. We are living in a pluralistic society that, that, that shuns the idea that there would be one way, one truth, right? And yet Jesus claimed absolute exclusivity. We live in a current culture in America that embraces the gospel, but only to a point to the point of exclusivity where Jesus asserts his lordship. It was the same thing in first century Rome. The mantra of culture was Caesar is Lord. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans and said, if you want to be saved, you need to be able to say Jesus is Lord. It was challenging the pluralistic mindset of the day. We live in that same context. Now, here's what pluralism does. Pluralism always leads to secularization. Okay, don't misunderstand secularization. Secularization is not an attempt to abolish or get rid of religion. Rather, the goal is to just push it to the periphery of life. This is what secular, or excuse me, pluralism must do. Because if all these truths are equal, right, then we can't possibly have one that takes center stage. That's what's going on in America right now. It's all equal, coexist. You've seen the bumper stickers. That's a pluralistic worldview and mindset, coexist. So we can't possibly have one that takes center stage. It could never be the main conversation in culture. So we have to push religion to the periphery. That's secularization. It's not the abolition of religion. It is a marginalization of it. And what it wants is for religion to be present in culture, but for it to be moderate, temperate, keep it at bay. Our junior high pastor tried to get into the junior high recently to speak at the Christian club. And the principal forbid him to come and speak at the Christian club. Because the mindset is, we can't, have, we, we can't have the conversation of religion on the middle stage. We can't have that at school. Religion is fine, but keep it on the periphery. And what ends up happening is that religion becomes privatized. Pluralism leads to secularization, leads to privatization of religion. That's what our schools are saying. You're religious, fine. Don't bring it into the public sector. That's what businesses are saying. You, you want to be a Christian? That's great. Just don't push it in the workplace. Religion, no problem. Just be private about it. And my, my concern for the church in America is that we're like that junior high experiment that some of you did where you put the frog And some cool water, right? And then you turn up the heat and it started to boil and the frog boiled. They don't do it anymore because there are too many tree huggers. But back in the day, you know, you could boil a frog at school. That was awesome. (laughs) My concern for the church in America is, is that we're like that. That Christ is seeming to us like a supplement because we are a supplemental culture, we love supplements. We love additives, something I could take to make my situation, my life, my health, whatever it is, better, right? I've told you before about my doctor who's got me on all these supplements, and I've got boxes of different shakes that I'm supposed to mix up every day, and all these different pills, and every time I see him, he's like, dude, here's a new shake, take this shake, mix it up, and blah, 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 and I'll tell you the truth, it makes me feel better. It helps me. It's good. I'm a supplemental guy. We're a supplemental culture. We want little things that we can add to make our situation better. And I'm afraid that we've so bought into that that we begin to see Christ as a possible supplement. And the challenge to that is the idea that unless Christ is everything, he's nothing. Because we're not presented a lesser Christ in scripture. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And I I think that many of us have become more secularized, and privatized in our Christian expression than we might realize. And perhaps the reason is we've given more attention to the message of culture than the message of Christ. We've given more attention to the desires of the world than the truth of the word. And culture and the world are screaming at us to put Christ on the periphery. Be a Christian, that's good for you, but you better not be radical and it better not be public. And so Paul is saying that Jesus is the ultimate life and he's relaying it from a place of difficulty, external challenges, government sanctioned persecution, and it's a counter culture message. And then he says that Christ is the ultimate example and he says this to rally them to unity. He said that Christ was the ultimate life, relaying his difficulty. Now he says that Christ is the ultimate example, rallying them to unity. Says in chapter two, verses one and two. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, Paul here's like, guys, please throw me a bone. Okay, that's a loose paraphrase. He's like, gosh, just work with me on this. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. He's looking to rally them to unity. He's repeating what he said in verse 27 of the previous chapter. He said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's begging them to stay together in the midst of adversity, to keep it together as the people of God. And again, the impetus is not gonna be mere directive. It's gonna be a story. It's gonna be the story of Jesus Christ, of God draping himself in humanity, subjecting himself to humanity being born of a virgin, laying in a manger, ultimately being beaten, mocked, scourged, spit upon, crucified, nailed to the cross, flesh torn open. And he says later on in this chapter that if Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to keep holding on to for his own purposes, but rather surrendered that and humbled himself to become a man and to be crucified on a cross, what has been done to you that you can't forgive? What disagreement that we have that's is, that is greater than the story of the gospel? What grievance can we not overlook? How can we fail to let love cover a multitude of sins? How can we continue in separation and broken relationship when God went so far to bring us back into relationship? And what happens when we do this, when we fail to consider others more important than ourselves, and I do this, when we fail to forgive, when we don't expend the compassion and the mercy that we shed, what, what's going on there is something mu- much deeper than simply not getting it. What, what we're doing is we're being untrue, dishonest, disingenuous to who we actually are in Christ. If any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have become brand new. You have a brand new identity. You are actually and literally a new and different creature. And when we fail to pursue Christ's likeness, and we don't consider others as more important, and we don't take on this humility. We're being disingenuous, untrue to what Christ has done in you that truly the seed of the gospel has been implanted in us and by the work of the Spirit is blossoming and bringing forth fruit that we have been changed and we are in the process of being changed. That the old things have passed away. That the old man is crucified with Christ and we've been risen to newness of life. And so then we are living a lie. When we give up too quickly on relationships, when we fail to forgive, when we fail to humble ourselves, when we fail to give up our rights, we're living a lie, we're not being true to who we actually are in Christ as new creations. So Paul talks about Christ being the ultimate life through relaying his difficulty, Christ being the ultimate example, rallying them to unity. And then in chapter three, he says that Christ is the ultimate treasure. And he illustrates this by talking about relinquishing his identity. Look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses, we'll just read 7 and 8. We already read them. But, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as butt rubbish. Wait, it doesn't say that. (laughs) But I like that. Let's roll with that. And it's kind of in the Greek. I'll bring it out when we get to chapter three. I count them as butt rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There is a wonderful expression of Paul valuing Jesus above and beyond anything else. And what what he's gonna say here in the preceding verses is that he was willing to give up everything else that previously gave him identity. And we're all challenged to hold on to things that give us identity and culture. The right family, the right Group, the right tribe, the right schooling, the right connections, the right performance. Look what Paul says about that. In verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. We'll explain all that when we get there. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and, the gl- and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, we put no confidence in the flesh. A Christian does not look to his or herself and say, yeah, man, I'm good. I'm doing good. I'm pulling this thing off. And I think I'm gonna be okay with God because of it. Or I think I'm gonna be okay with everyone else because of it. Okay, Okay, we don't do that. We've been called out of that. We don't put confidence in the flesh. But look what he says in verse four. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh... I far more. Okay, this is funny, Paul, right here. Paul's saying, "Listen, but if you want to talk about being bad in the flesh, I'm the man. Anyone else who thinks they had something going on for him, I was doing better than that. Michael Jackson thought he was bad, right? Remember that? Um, who said they were super bad? James Brown. James Brown thank you so much, James Brown, saying, "I'm super bad." Paul's saying, I'm super, super bad. Paul here is saying, I'm badder than anyone else. Now he's going to say it in a bunch of Jewish ways that aren't going to make sense to most of us. We'll talk about it when we get to chapter three, but now he's going to talk about how bad he is. He says in verse five, I was circumcised on the eighth day. See, that doesn't really make sense for most of us. That's not like the thing you go around and say, did you think you're bad? I was circumcised on the eighth day, dog. <laughs> what? My foreskin was gone. See, we don't, We'll explain all that stuff later. (laughs) To him, it was really meaningful. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which was in the law, I was blameless. Within his paradigm, within his context, in his world of Judaism... Paul was able to say, Hey, I had all of it going for me. I was born in the right family. I was in the right tribe. I had the right teachers. I was in the right religious group. I had the right performance. I did the right things at the right time. Within his context, he he said, I, I was a man, and he was. But then he goes on to say, whatever things were gained to me though, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now here's the challenge. In our own context, we've got things that we really hold on to that are just like this. Some reputation, some identity issues from this family. I've got these things. I've got this performance. Do you know what I've achieved? Do you know what I've done? Did the right things at the right time? I know the right people, went to the right school. And what we all do as people is we draw identity and value from those things. And that is counter gospel. That is unbiblical. We're not to derive our worth or our value or our identity from those things. Paul is saying that any of those things that previously made me awesome are butt rubbish. In light of knowing Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate and supreme treasure. Some of you got nothing going for you. You need to take the man's word. That no matter what you got, Jesus is better. Jesus is the treasure of surpassing value and everything else is lost in comparison. We're just not quick enough to be willing to relinquish our identity in those things that we previously drew value from, to really find our value in Christ. Listen to me. You are not loved by God because you're valuable. You are valuable because you're loved by God. You see, there's nothing awesome about you that made God go, oh, yeah, I'm gonna save him or her. This guy's awesome. There's nothing good about you. You see, for some of you, man, you got serious pride issues with God. And when you hear that, that irks you a little bit. Because you're like Paul was. You think, well, no, there's some good qualities about me. And there's some things I think God should appreciate. And listen, dude, even your best things are filthy rags. All sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this should be freeing from you. you. You might be seeing this wrong. There's nothing in you that makes God love you. For some of you, that bugs you. But what it ought to do is free you. Because this, this amazing love, which we've experienced through Christ, is not based on us or our performance or our character or our merit. It's based on God and who he is. And so therefore it is inexhaustible. If it was up to you, it would be exhausted because you'll fail. You'll fall short. You won't perform. You won't say the right thing. You won't do the right thing. You won't go to the right places. You won't have the right connections and the heritage. You'll always fail. But the freedom is God loves you according to who he is and not who we are. And so that frees us to just receive that love now to receive that adoption, to receive that forgiveness, to be free from the need to perform. That's what Paul experienced through the gospel. This amazing story that we perform so poorly, but we've been treated so kindly, accepted, adopted, and adored in the person of Christ. And so Philippians is gonna deal with some of our inner idolatry. Our inner idolatry, where we esteem ourselves and self-life too importantly. It's gonna help us to stop searching for physical possessions and certain persons and experiences to satisfy us. It's gonna reveal to us the truth that we will never be satisfied until we're satisfied in him. That's what Paul is saying. We will never be satisfied. Please know, no person will ever satisfy you. Your wife was not designed to satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. Girls, you're not gonna find it in a man. Every man will let you down. Your own mama will let you down. The only one that ever satisfies is Christ Jesus himself. Augustine said it this way. Thou hast created us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. That's what Paul found. That's why he says everything else is a waste. And finally, why does Paul say in chapter four that Christ is the ultimate strength? because he relishes in adversity. Chapter four, verse 11. Here's where we end. He says, not that I speak from want, but I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And here's the secret, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And literally in the Greek, it's I can do all things in Christ, in him who strengthens me. You see, it's, a, it's important that we don't leave it at through him, because that would just cause us to begin to see Christ as another supplement, I need to get to this goal. I need to get out of this hurt, out of this pain. I need to get to this place. Maybe I could do it through Christ. Maybe Christ is another avenue. But it's in Christ. It's only when we're in Christ, when Christ for us is life and the ultimate example and the supreme treasure, only then will we truly find ultimate strength in him. And we need it. And he's meant to be that for us but he's not meant to be anything less. Lord, we just ask that you would work these things into our hearts. Lord, I want to want you more. I want you, Lord, and I love you, but I'm ashamed of my lack of want and my lack of love. We only love because you first loved us. We ask for an enabling by grace to want and to love you more. We ask for an expanding of our hearts to experience you more. We ask for an opening of our eyes that we would see lesser things as lesser things and Christ as the supreme thing. Help us with this, Lord. We confess our proclivity to be too easily distracted, enamored with the stuff of this world, things that are shiny and new and relationships that are exciting and opportunities that advance our agendas. Oh, Lord, open my eyes, open my heart. Cause me to see Christ more clearly. Cause us to see Christ more clearly. Jesus, this book says that you are the answer for all the matters of life, self, selfish ambition, difficult circumstances. Holy Spirit, exalt Christ in our midst. Minister story and the truth and the power of the gospel to us and through us. If you need help today in any way, the prayer team will be up here for anything that you need. Helps me to see Christ as supreme, to enthrone him on my heart when I get on my face. We invite you to do that. But let's pursue him now.